Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. But we're actually going to be looking at the entire Sermon on the Mount, or at least that's my goal. We'll get as far as we can. I hope to finish it all. That's my purpose today. The main theme of the Sermon on the Mount is gospel righteousness. You'll notice that the title of the sermon today is A Righteousness That Exceeds. And this is really Jesus' main point in the Sermon on the Mount, to explain to us what is this righteousness that exceeds. And he is going to explain to us that this righteousness that exceeds is something that exceeds or transcends or is of a completely different kind of righteousness than what we see in the scribes and the Pharisees. Christ's righteousness that he calls his people to practice in their lives, in their discipleship, is not a legalistic, moralistic, hypocritical, external, professional, nominal, fleshly, earthbound, boasting, proud, holier-than-thou righteousness. It is a righteousness that exceeds. It's, in fact, a righteousness that conforms to the pure holiness of our own Savior, the Lord Jesus. So the whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is this righteousness that exceeds. The gospel, Jesus is going to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, produces in those that it has transformed new life and righteousness and holiness in the Holy Spirit. It produces the fruits of righteousness. And Jesus goes to great lengths to describe to us what that righteousness, what that holiness looks like. And this will be very, very helpful for us to, in, in general this morning. We need to hear this message again. It's the fundamental message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our sin and to deliver us into his holiness. But brothers and sisters, let me just say, many of you know we're going to start back into our series on Second Peter next Sunday. The things out of this sermon are perfect complements to what Peter is saying in the whole book of 2 Peter. So I just throw that out there for those of you who've been following the series. This is really part of my series in 2 Peter. I didn't know I was going to preach it, but I'm glad that I've got the chance to preach it to you this morning. So we are going to open up the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to begin by noticing a couple of things from the context. Let's set the frame of this sermon first. This is very, very important. The reason I had chapter 4 read for you is that it reminds us who Jesus is. And chapter 4 reminds us that Jesus fundamentally is in his person, and the reason he came to this earth is to be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ is the dawning of a light for those who are in darkness. And he comes with divine power to call sinners to himself. You see that with Simon and Andrew and the sons of Zebedee to call people out of that darkness, to follow him and to become his disciples. And Jesus Christ is he who proclaims a message of good news. He came proclaiming the gospel. He did not come proclaiming a message of bad news. Jesus came proclaiming a message of good news, wonderful news. And the message that he preaches has the power to save. We see that in the miracles that he did. Don't get caught up on those healings. But they teach to us that the message that Jesus preaches... If Jesus can heal the sicknesses of the crowds, then the gospel can heal our very souls. And Jesus is the light who has come to call us to himself into this gospel message that has the power to heal fundamentally our problem with sin. 
He has the power to change, to transform, to make new, to wash and to renew sinners and to convert us into those who are holy and righteous and true. The whole Sermon on the Mount that is framed by this glorious message. And then we get into the context itself of chapter 5 through chapter 7, which is what we're going to be looking at today. Notice with me, first of all, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, I want you to notice in this context that Jesus' audience contains two kinds of people. Number one, and you need to know who you are is the reason why I'm bringing this out to you today. He is addressing his disciples. Those are those who trust in him and believe in him and follow him and learn from him. Those who are in Christ. And he's addressing the crowds. And that's you today if you are outside of Jesus Christ. And Christ's message to you today is a message of good news. It's a message of gospel righteousness. It's a message of salvation from sin for the encouragement of his disciples and for their teaching and instruction and edification and for the salvation of the crowds. Know who you are this morning. Are you in Christ or out of Christ? He's addressing you either way, but know who you are. Now turn with me to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 7, the very last two verses of chapter 7. And I want you to notice what we read here. Again, a very important part of framing this sermon correctly. And when Jesus finished these sayings, when he finishes his sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, the reason I'm bringing that out is because that, the point that that passage is reminding us of and, and making to us today is that Jesus is God in the flesh. And when Jesus speaks, God speaks. And the sermon that Jesus preached was true because it's the Word of God. And it came with that kind of authority. And it comes today with that kind of authority, as I've said to you already in various ways of the prayer and so on, that He's already seated at the Father's right hand. He is alive. He died for sin. He rose again. He's alive. His word carries his authority, and it carries divine authority. And it has the power to save you, and it has the power to change you and edify you if you're in Jesus Christ. So I just want to say some of those things as way of introduction to the sermon itself. And now we get into the Sermon on the Mount. Now my goal here is to give you the whole sermon... My sermon today isn't really my sermon. I'm just guiding you through Christ's sermon. This is his message to you today. So I'm just going to guide you through what Jesus said. I'm going to do my best to present this to you. Now, of course, you know what that means. You know many pastors have come to the Sermon on the Mount and have spent Sunday after Sunday, years, long series. So I can't, I can't go into depth on the Sermon on the Mount, of course. I can't say everything that there is to say. So some of it we're going to skim over and so on. But what I want you to hear is what Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to get his message. And it'll be very helpful for us, I trust, this morning. These are the words of Christ. These are the words of God. And the first thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus comes right out of the gate. He opens with the gospel. He opens with beatitude. He opens with blessing. To put it this way, Jesus begins his sermon with the benediction. 
And look at who he pronounces his benediction upon. It might shock you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is pronouncing good news and benediction upon the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, the reconcilers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and enter all kind, and, and, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they per- persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who is Jesus pronouncing his benediction, his gospel blessing upon the poor in spirit? Who are the poor in spirit? You have to understand the poor that Jesus is talking about here are the destitute. In America, we might have a hard time of really grasping what poor means because he doesn't mean an oppressed people in society. He means people, and he doesn't mean people who don't have because they don't work. And of course, in America, we have so much wealth and prosperity, even our poor are obese. No, Jesus means the destitute, those who have nothing. And what do they pour in? They're poor in their spirit. They lack wisdom. They lack holiness. They lack the Holy Spirit. They are without the kingdom. And he comes pronouncing good news to such because Jesus brings them in the gospel, the kingdom. He comes bringing in the gospel, the very thing that they lack, which is the holiness of the Holy Spirit. He's preaching the gospel to us this morning. And he's preaching it to us with divine authority and power and glory. Blessed are those who mourn. Who are those who mourn? Those who weep for the dead. And if we're disciples of Christ, we know that the dead are those, or that the reason death is in the world is because of sin. And death is a consequence of sin. These are those who weep over the miseries of sin and weep over sin. And he brings the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to bring comfort to those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That term meekness literally refers to someone who is bowed down under heavy labor and toil under a harsh master. The meek, a servant. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. You have to understand what Jesus is saying there in the Old Testament. The one who inherits the earth is the Messiah. I will tell of the decree, the Messiah says in the Old Testament. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I have given you the nations as your inheritance. And Jesus comes speaking to those who are bowed down under the hard labor and toil of a sinful world and says, I have made you inheritors with me of the earth. I bring you liberty from your captivity. He's preaching the message of the gospel. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Who's the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? Not the fool, not the satisfied, not the quenched. The one who needs righteousness and knows that they need righteousness. He's bringing the gospel back to his disciples and he's reminding them of the word that they've believed and the word that has changed them. He's coming with divine power and authority. Blessed are the merciful. Who are the merciful? We all know that there's no one who comes into this world, born into this world, merciful. The only people who are merciful are those who know at some point in their life and experience that they deserve punishment and condemnation and that they need mercy. This is what Jesus means. He's addressing sinners. He's addressing those who lack holiness. He's addressing those who mourn over sin. He's addressing those who are bowed down in slaves in a sinful world. He's addressing the unrighteous who need righteousness. He's addressing the condemned who need mercy. And he promises in the gospel mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The idea of pure in heart here isn't moral perfection. It's the idea of having only one single desire. And that single desire is to be with God, to see Him face to face. This is the way the Scriptures speak of purity of heart. To see the Lord's face. To be reconciled with Him. Who is the one who needs to be reconciled with God, but the one who is alienated? Jesus has come to bring a gospel pronunciation of benediction upon those who are alienated because the reconciler has come in Jesus Christ and they shall see God. In the gospel, he has brought them the hope of heaven and being reconciled with God. And so he goes on and he brings the benediction to the peacemakers, the reconcilers, those who know that they've, been, that they've in Christ received the hope of heaven and reconciliation with God and are now ready from the depths of their soul in thankfulness and gratefulness and praise to reconcile with ever, any, any enemy they've ever had. <laughs> their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers, their children, everyone. And they become peacemakers. They become like their God. They become like Christ. And they become peacemakers. And they have a desire more than anything else beyond the reconciliation of their own relationships to preach this glorious message that makes that reconciliation possible, which is that God brings reconciliation to sinners in Jesus Christ. Blessed are my disciples, Jesus is saying. Because the gospel has come to them and it has come to them with power and authority. They shall be called sons of God. They will be conformed to the image of their father who is a peacemaker. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is Jesus' way of saying, those who are in my kingdom, who have heard the benediction, who have received the gospel are servants of God. And they carry with them, like the prophets, the title, slaves of God, servants of God. Benediction. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Benediction. 
Now, my question to you this morning is, do you believe that message? That's the only question that's important at this point in the sermon. Do you believe that message? If you believe that message, let's focus on the first beatitude. Do you believe what Jesus says? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you believe what Jesus is saying, you must accept that you are poor in spirit, that you are destitute, that you lack before God any holiness, any wisdom, any righteousness, any power on your own to please Him or do His will or be a citizen of His kingdom. But if you believe Jesus, then you also believe that He came to rescue you from that desperate state. And He pronounces upon you by the power and authority of God benediction and promises you from Himself in the gospel by the power of His Holy Spirit the kingdom of God to come upon you today. So that, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ isn't simply teaching us words of wisdom. He is doing that. And, there's a lot, and it's like we can't go deep. We can draw out all the application. But the main thing that Jesus is doing is reminding his disciples of the gospel, that glorious gospel, and in the power of God, and that by divine decree, by the mere stating of the words, he's transformed us through faith, which itself is a gift of God. And we are new creatures in Christ we are the poor in spirit who have the kingdom of God. We are the mourners who are comforted. We are the meek who will inherit the earth. We are the hungry and thirsty for righteousness who Christ has promised will be satisfied with it. We are those who need mercy, who have been granted mercy. We are those who are alienated from God but have been reconciled with God. We are those who are reconcilers and so conformed to the image of our God and being conformed to the image of our God. And we have been granted this great honor from our Savior by divine word, by divine calling, by divine benediction, servants of God. We are like the prophets all over the Old Testament. The prophets are called servants of God. That's Jesus' point here. And so Jesus, uh, he comes right, bursting out of the gate with his sermon, with the message of good news, with a message of light to those in darkness, a message of power and calling to all men to follow him, and a message that has the power to convert and heal and change and renew, and it has renewed, and it is renewing even in the mere speaking of his word through faith. And then Jesus goes on to speak about the purpose that he has for this glorious gospel. Why has Jesus brought beatitude and good news to his people? He has two reasons, so that they might be salt and light. And I want you to notice what Jesus says in verse 12, uh, 13 uh, through 16. Jesus says, now here's what I want you to notice. Pay, pay careful attention. Jesus does not say, be salt or be light. Now that is an exhortation. There's an implicit commandment in these passages. I'll draw it out for you here in just a moment. That's the exhortation to be salt and to be light. But I want you to notice that's not what Jesus says. <laughs> Jesus isn't talking about you. Jesus is talking about his intention in saving you. Notice what he says. You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say go be salt on the earth. He declares by an indicative, by a divine decree, something true about his disciples. He speaks into reality a newness. You are salt. You are the miserable. You are the bland. You are the dead. 
and he has made you salt. And he goes on, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, unless you believe that you made yourself salt, what you hear Jesus to say is, I made you salt, and I guarantee you I didn't do it so you could just lose your saltiness. I did it so that you could live this beatitude. I lived it so you could be conformed to the image of these things that I've pronounced upon you. And he's in, sort of, in some ways, by divine power, liberating us and calling us to a life to live according to these glorious truths, to believe them and to, and to put into practice those things that are consistent with them. In other words, he's calling us, salt is graciousness. And the glory and the goodness of being gracious people You are the salt of the earth. Secondly, you're the light of the world. Again, he's not saying be light. He says you are light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now again, if you're like me, and maybe maybe it's just me, maybe you're all thinking, well, I'm, I'm glad Pastor Price finally caught up with the rest of us. But most of us, I think, read this as a commandment, and we see ourselves in that. I'm, I'm, the, I'm in the gospel, I can't cover it up. Jesus is saying, Jesus is the one who lit you. Jesus is the light. You're the lamp, he's the one who lit you. And he's saying, I didn't do it with, in vain. I didn't do it just to cover you up. <laughs> I did it so you would be light, and that you would shine. And that people would see what I've done in your life. That the grace of God would be evident in you. And he says it will be. (laughs) In the same way, let your light shine. Now there's the exhortation. He said, because I've done it for that purpose, then go be this. Go be salt and go be light. That's the very reason that I have pronounced this benediction upon you, my disciples, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus has just finished his introduction. (laughs) And like many preachers, Jesus' introduction was a little lengthy. But here's the point where we are then in Jesus' sermon. Well, praise the Lord, glory, hallelujah. The The grace of God has come to us in Jesus Christ today. Salvation, the kingdom of heaven, comfort, the hope of heaven, all those things that he's mentioned. This glorious grace, this salt of the earth, we've been transformed into it by the very creating power of Christ. This light fills us. Well, our temptation is to say, what else do we need? (laughs) I mean, even in the things that Jesus says, you know, there's application there for meekness and Man, we've got everything that we need. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) We're just getting started. There's another very important reason that I've saved you, Jesus is saying to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And that is so that you might bear the true fruits of gospel righteousness. That you might become fulfillers of the law in my stead. And he's not talking about imputation. He's not talking about justification and those things, if you're familiar with those terms. But he is speaking about this glorious idea that he's called us into his new life in the kingdom. He's called us to holiness. He's called us to true holiness. 
Jesus Christ has done something divine. He has done something wonderful. He has transformed us by this gospel. He has rescued us from sin and lawlessness in order that we might, in him, become truly righteous and truly holy. Look at how Jesus transitions into this point in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, what Jesus means here in general is he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Old Testament. It's helpful for us if we focus down on the fact that what he's really what his, what his purpose is in the Sermon on the Mount is to turn our attention to the Ten Commandments. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to, the, to abolish what the Old Testament says about God's will or its truth or its application or the things that it pointed to. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Now you have to understand when Jesus says fulfill, he doesn't just mean do. <laughs> he doesn't mean if God said do this, then Christ did it. When Jesus uses that word fulfill, he means to blow the top off of. He means to fulfill it in its fullest, in those ultimate sense. He means far beyond the letter. He means the very spirit of that law, the very will of the Father. He's the embodiment of the righteousness of God. He's the embodiment of the will of God in the flesh. He has come to fulfill, to fill to, to the very top and overflowing to exceed and to transcend what our conception was of the law and morality. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, when will earth pass away? Judgment day. When will heaven pass away? Never. <laughs> so you hear what Jesus is saying. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he doesn't just mean in himself, he means in his people, which means that forever, forever and ever, this law stands. It abides. It cannot be abolished. Therefore, he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's the person who doesn't get the gospel is what Jesus is saying. They haven't heard the gospel. They may have heard... It's spoken, they may have heard it explained, but it didn't get into their souls, they didn't believe it. They don't understand those beatitudes that I just gave to you. They don't understand what it means to be grace. They don't understand what it means to be light in the world. They are least in my kingdom. They are the most immature. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now here's the person who believes in Jesus and follows him and understands that they are sinners saved by grace. Saved, redeemed sinners. And he gets to his main idea. Here it is. It's in chapter 5, verse 20. This is his thesis statement on the Sermon on the Mount. Everything, else he, everything he's been saying has been to get to this point. Everything he's going to say afterwards is to explain this point. So it's very important that we hear what Jesus says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now listen to the warning. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are weighty words. 
especially for any serious follower of Christ. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know in the Bible, the scribes are experts in the letter of the law. They knew it inside and outside and backwards and forwards, and they were especially experts in twisting it, as we'll see in just a moment. And the Pharisees were experts in putting into practice the teaching of the scribes. They were zealots for the practice of what they understood the law of God to say. And what really boils down to it, what they were, were they were legalist. They were moralist. They were hypocrites. They were proud and boasting in their righteousness. They did their righteousness for motives uh, that relate to the gain of this earth and for the applause of men. They were externally righteous. They gave the appearance of religiosity or morality But inside, Jesus says later in the book of Matthew, they were full of dead men's bones. They had a legalistic, moralistic, religious, external, fleshly, earthbound righteousness. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says the righteousness of the gospel is something entirely different from that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's of a different kind. It it exceeds it. It transcends it. It's more wonderful than it because it's born of grace. It's the fruit of the gospel. It's the product of a renewed heart and life, not the efforts of men. It's the fruit of God and God's Spirit in your life and not the efforts of men. And he gives us this warning, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you lack this righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is exhorting us to and reminding us of is that if we lack this righteousness, we don't know the first thing about the gospel. We can't even see his kingdom. We haven't heard what he said. We didn't hear the benediction. We didn't receive it by faith. It didn't come wash and renew us and revive us. And so Jesus now is going to talk about this righteousness that exceeds. He's going to explain what he means by it. He's going to explain the kind of effect that it has in the life of a believer. And he's going to make essentially three points. In chapter 5, he makes the point that a righteousness that exceeds is something that permeates the whole being of a disciple of Christ. It really is a new life. The gospel washes and renews to the very depths of our whole being. It transforms us from the inside out, this righteousness that exceeds. And then he's going to make a second point in chapter 6, which is the, he's going to talk about the motivation that ought to be behind a righteousness that exceeds. And the motivation is a pure love of the Father. He doesn't mean a perfect love of the Father, but a pure, unadulterated love of the Father And then he's going to come to chapter 7, and he's going to remind us of the character of this righteousness that exceeds. And this righteousness that exceeds has the character and the quality of humility. And we'll see that in relation to man, in relation to God. And then he finishes his sermon with four warnings, four applications. A little summary, but four applications he finishes his sermon with. So let's jump into the body of Christ's sermon. Where does he go next? He says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to explain 
this righteousness. And he gives us some examples of it. He gives us about six or seven of them or so. That's not an exact number, but he gives us a couple of examples of this righteousness that exceeds. And so he says in verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, the way the Pharisees and the scribes understood this was as long as you didn't put a knife in someone's back, you were fine. If you put a knife in someone's back, you were liable to condemnation. But here's what Jesus comes and says to us. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother... Jesus' righteousness and the standard by which he judges his disciples and their righteousness and the purity of their heart gets down even to their emotions. Even if you're angry with your brother, even if you have the intention or the thought or the feeling of doing him harm. Jesus says, you will be liable to judgment. He means hellfire. Whoever insults his brother, whoever thinks an imp- a thought of anger or belittles his brother, even if he doesn't express it with his mouth, will be liable to the council. That's the same thing of judgment on judgment day. Whoever says and uses his words, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And Jesus then, un- he, 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 he puts us on the altar and he lays us right open. He cuts us right open. And he shows us that sin and righteousness are a matter of the very soul and the very heart of man. It penetrates the very depths. And in and our wickedness and in our depravity, we can even make emotions and thoughts and words into murderous weapons against our brothers. And Jesus is calling then us as his disciples, we must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. We must be pure within. We must be washed and renewed from the very depths of our being. We must be washed and renewed in our emotions. We must be washed and renewed in our intentions. We must be washed and renewed in the words that we use. And I'm not going to read every verse of this Sermon on the Mount. The next thing that he says there in that context is that we must be our brother's keeper. We must be lovers of our brother. If we do not, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We will come under his condemnation and judgment. Now, I just want to pause here for a moment and remind you that the Jesus who is speaking these words is the Jesus who rose from the dead, who God has appointed to be judge of the world. This is the standard by which he will measure all men. This is his standard. This is the righteousness that exceeds. Now, don't be too discouraged at this point, because I have a feeling that you are going to begin to feel discouraged pretty quickly as we get through this sermon. <laughs> But remember that what Jesus is saying in the context to his disciples is that it's this kind of life, it's this level of purity that the gospel enables within you, that has created in you, and that's working within you. So this is what it means to be a disciple. You see how Jesus, he's being winsome with his disciples. He's calling us to himself. I'm calling you, Jesus is saying, to be pure in your emotions and to be pure in your thoughts and to be pure in your words. Come and follow me, Jesus says. The gospel grants you that power and that transformational life. A holy life. It produces it in you. It it, it enables it in you. 
Come follow me, Jesus is saying to his disciples. And to the, and to the crowds, he's saying, come to me and be saved because this is the standard by which I'm going to judge you. Lust, he comes to the commandment of adultery. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Now again, in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, as long as you didn't enter into an affair, you were fine. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in her, uh, his heart. And we could twist that around or, or, or we could turn it around and apply it the other way. If a woman looks at a man and lusts after him or if a person looks at a man and lusts after him, it would be adultery in the heart. And Jesus again is saying that his righteousness penetrates even to the eyes, what we look at where we turn our gaze and our attention and to our very desires, our very will. And Jesus is saying to his disciples that the gospel message that he preaches has produced in them new eyes and new loves, new desires. So much so that, they go to, that these, this new will and this new desire that he's produced in us is at odds and contrary to the will of our nature. This is what he says next in verse 29. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And of course, Jesus isn't teaching self-mutilation here, but he is teaching us that the disciples in his kingdom must war against the desires of the flesh. The righteousness that exceeds, reaches, and penetrates the whole being of Christ's disciples. It reaches to our emotions. It reaches to our tongues. It reaches to our eyes. It reaches to our very desires. And Jesus is calling us to this gospel righteousness. A righteousness that seeks to be holy inside and out. And Jesus goes on. He speaks about divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, I don't want to get into the details of what Jesus is talking about here with respect to divorce. But here's what Jesus' point is to his disciples. He is saying to them that the scribes and the Pharisees make it a practice constantly to twist and misapply God's law. The Pharisees are externalist, and they're also great, what, is, what should I use? They make excuses. They, they misuse the word of God. They misinterpret it. They misapply it constantly. You see, what, what Jesus is really addressing here, don't get distracted by the technicalities of what this means about divorce. What Jesus is saying is that this is something that the Pharisees and scribes do that my disciples will not do by my grace and by my commandment and by my teaching. They have this tendency to come to a place like this where they see in the law of God that there was a place that talked about what to do when you got divorced. So therefore, God must approve of divorce. Therefore, it's okay to divorce as long as we do it according to the law. And they use the law as an excuse for their sin. They use the law as a cover-up for their faithlessness, their unfaithfulness, their lack of commitment. And Jesus is saying the righteousness that I've brought to you in the gospel, that I've renewed and washed you to, that you're being transformed into, and this spirit that I've given to you by divine benediction is a spirit that does not treat God's word that way. 
It doesn't live by the letter alone. It lives by the spirit of that law. It doesn't twist God's word as a cover-up for sin. That's exactly the same point he makes next. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, Jesus is quoting an Old Testament law that said, if you swear by the Lord, you have to perform it. So what the Pharisees would do is not swear by the Lord. <laughs> they would swear by everything else. So, and, they would, and they would pretend that this was an uh, act of humility. That if they could swear by something less than God, then if they didn't perform it, they hadn't sworn falsely. And so they were always swearing by everything. They were swearing by Jerusalem and the hair on their head and all kinds of things. You can see what Jesus says next. Let's read it so I don't throw you off entirely. Verse, chapter 5, verse 34, he says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven... For it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. These are, the, these are some examples of the silly things that the scribes and the Pharisees were doing to try to get out of the commandment, the spirit of the commandment. They would take God's word and twist it. They would use it as a cloak for their sin. And Jesus then tells us, don't behave this way. Of course, Jesus isn't condemning oaths. There's a proper place for oaths. But he says, do not take an oath. Verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You see what Jesus is calling to us to. Honesty, sincerity from the very depths of our being. Commitment, sincerity, faithfulness, truth. If we can, we say yes. If we can't, we say no. And we leave it there. That's enough, Jesus is saying. He's addressing the heart. His standard of holiness, his standard of righteousness is very high. It penetrates the very soul of man to the depths of our being and permeates all of our lives. He speaks about retaliation. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, let me explain very carefully. A lot of people misunderstand this. That In the Old Testament, that wasn't a general principle for punishment against sin. That was the punishment for a particular sin. In the Old Testament, it was the punishment for the particular sin of false accusation. So here's the idea that Jesus is addressing. In the Old Covenant community, as a scribe and a Pharisee, if you didn't like your brother, if you really hated his guts, and you wanted to be really mean to him, well, God's law says that you couldn't hurt him. But what you could do is falsely accuse him. <laughs> you could falsely accuse him. And if he was found guilty of the crime that you falsely accused him, then he would bear the punishment of the crime. So if you wanted to kill somebody, the best way you could do it and stay under the radar of the law was to falsely accuse them of a crime that resulted in the death penalty. Now, you've got to follow with me on this. This is what eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So if you falsely accuse your brother, the law of God said that the punishment for the false accusation was the punishment of the crime that you falsely accused your brother for. So that a scribe and a Pharisee reads God's law and comes to the conclusion that the Lord God of heaven and earth delights in retaliation and comeuppance. Because the Lord God of heaven and earth protects the innocent in his law 
with this commandment that if someone were to falsely accuse the innocent, that innocent person could take them to court and say, I was falsely accused, and then every evil thing that their brother wanted to bring upon them with the false accusation would come right back on their brother. And they took this to be God's approval of retaliation. And this is what Jesus is addressing here. He says in the gospel and a proper interpretation of the law. God never delighted in retaliation. You missed the point. So here's what he says, verse 30. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You are not to have a spirit, Jesus says, of retaliation. You're not to have a spirit of strife or enmity. You're not to turn reviling for reviling, threatening for threatening, harm for harm. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have the cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. If anybody voluntells you, I've been talking to my wife and she says, there's, she, she, we're talking about something, I don't remember what. She says, she uses this word voluntold. I said, what did you say? What does that mean? I'd never heard it before. But apparently, it's a, I started hearing it everywhere now that she said it. So it's like a thing, voluntold. You know what it is to be voluntold, right? You didn't volunteer, but someone forced you to do something you don't want to do. Everybody says, yeah, I get it. It's like a big thing right now. This is what Jesus is saying. If someone voluntells you, you go with them two miles. Because what's your temptation? How dare they tell me? How dare they do that? <clears throat> and we start to seek retaliation. Jesus says, this is not the spirit of my gospel. This is not the spirit of my righteousness. The spirit of my righteousness is generosity. He's going to mention here just a minute, love for your enemies. Now, let me be very clear about something here very quickly. Jesus is not telling us that we, if we're bullied or if someone commits a crime against us, or if we're called into service in the military, Jesus is not telling us that we ought not to do those things. He's addressing the spirit of vindictiveness, of retaliation, of bitterness in the soul. That's what this teaching refers to. And his standard of righteousness and his standard of holiness permeates even our intentions towards those who have harmed us, our relationships with other people. It gets into our emotions and into our words, into our thoughts, into our intentions, into our eyes, into our hands, into our wills, into the way that we read and use God's word and to our relationship with one another. Give to the one who begs from you, Jesus says. There's a spirit of generosity. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There's a spirit of love and generosity and giving. This is Christ's standard. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, do not even criminals do that? They, they take care of their own. And if you greet your brothers, what more do you do than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We must love our enemies. 
And the standard of Christ's holiness in his kingdom is the holiness of his Father, which he has just defined primarily as his goodness, even to those who are his enemies. Reminds us of what God did for us when we were enemies, how he was kind to us and merciful to us and ultimately forgave us of our sins. This is what Jesus means when he says, be perfect, be holy as my Father is holy, be gracious as my Father is, be, is gracious, be pure in all of your whole being as my Father is pure. And again, I'll just mention to you, brothers and sisters, we take some comfort knowing that this is, this is the kind of holiness that the gospel should produce in our lives. But we ought to do some self-examination as we quickly realize that we fall far short of this standard. Every one of us does. And if you're outside of Christ, the one who speaks this word is the one who will judge you. It's the scribes and the Pharisees who thought that they would be judged by the way they interpreted God's law. And Christ dashes that dream and that delusion and says, no, I will be your judge, and my standard is the standard of my Father's holiness. You must repent. You must believe in Jesus. You need one thing only, and that's the salvation of your soul. You need holiness. You need righteousness, and only the gospel can grant it. Come to Christ and find it. He freely offers it. That's what the benediction was all about. Now, Jesus is going to turn into his second point. And I'm going to go through the next couple of points a little swifter than what I've gone through that first point. And the second point that Jesus makes is he says, Righteousness that exceeds not only permeates the whole being, but is motivated by a pure love of the Father because the Father has loved us in forgiving us of our sins. And so Jesus is now going to speak about motivation. And the whole argument of chapter 6 is that the gospel righteousness that exceeds is motivated by a pure love of the Father. It is not motivated by the applause of men. It is not motivated by the desire for earthly gain. And it is not motivated by fear or anxiety. It is motivated by trust in God. It is motivated by love for the Father. It is motivated by love for the Father, knowing that He first loved us, and knowing that that love is expressed and communicated in the forgiveness of our sins. This is gospel righteousness. This is gospel holiness. So look, notice what He says in chapter 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The idea then being that we ought to be motivated simply out of our love for the Father. That's the idea there. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. He gives us an example of this. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they've received their reward. They've received the applause of men. They got what they were looking for. But when you give to the needy, Jesus saying, as a gospel disciple, as a follower of Christ, when you give, when you do a good work, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the idea that Jesus is addressing here is motivation, what moves you. Jesus says, for my disciple, what moves us 
is the, is the love of the Father, our love for him. And he gives us the example of prayer and fasting and many other religious observances. What moves true righteousness is nothing less than the love of the Father that we have because we know that he first loved us. We do it in secret. We don't do it for the applause of men. We do it for our Heavenly Father. Not that we give anything to Him, but because our hearts are filled with love for Him. And when we love someone, we want to do what they've commanded. We want to do what, they've, what pleases them, what they approve of. And we can't add anything to God, and we can't give anything to God. But the gospel has come, and it saved us from our sins. And it's renewed us from within. And it's given us a new heart. And we love God. And we love Him purely. That not perfectly, but we have a real, genuine, sincere love for Him. And this is what drives, Jesus is teaching us, ought to drive our righteousness. It's what drives a righteousness that exceeds. This love of a Father. And as He unfolds chapter 6, He also excludes not only the approval of men, but the gain of the things of this world. And that's what he really means when he talks about treasures in heaven. He means out of love for the Father. And he excludes anxiety and worry. These are the kinds of things that can motivate us to live uh, a, what we think of as a righteous life. But Jesus is saying for his disciples, for a righteousness that exceeds this gospel righteousness, it is motivated by a pure love of the Father and that pure love of the Father is founded upon His love for us in the forgiveness of our sins. And we can see this in chapter 6, verse 14 to 15. I'm not going to read those texts, but I want you to maybe star or underline or remember chapter 6, verse 14 through 15. I don't have time to deal with those verses in any kind of detail. But one of the things that's interesting here is that the center of the Sermon on the Mount is found right here in what Jesus teaches about forgiveness, about the Father's forgiveness and the obligation that it puts on us to be like our Father and to forgive, because that's true righteousness. That's a gospel righteousness. Because we have been loved, we love. And because the Father has forgiven us, we forgive. And I don't have time to break that all open for you, but it is interesting how Jesus emphasizes that point and how he emphasizes it right at the heart, right at the center of the sermon that he's preaching. Now, in English, that doesn't have such a big deal, but in the Bible, it does. To put something in the middle is to say it's emphasized. And so the motivation of a disciple of Christ is a love of the Father because the Father has loved us and especially has expressed that to us in the forgiveness of sins. This is very much like what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. That the, not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as a propitiation for our sins. The Father loved us in the forgiveness of our sins. This whole idea of forgiveness, it's central. You can take all theology and you can say Jesus Christ is the integral whole of theology. He's the sum of theology. And you can take this message, God forgives sin, and it's the center of all practical theology, all practical living. Psalm 130 verse 4 says, there is forgiveness with you so that you might be feared, so that you might be loved and worshipped and shown devotion to. 
And so Jesus is teaching us about this righteousness that exceeds, that he has brought to us with divine glory and divine power and beatitude and the power of his Holy Spirit and the way that it permeates our whole life and the way that it works in our motivations and we begin to live a new kind of life that's dedicated to love of the Father for the Father's love for us. And then we get back into chapter 7, where we move forward to chapter 7, and Jesus makes his third point, which is that a righteousness that exceeds is characterized by humility in relation to men and in relation to God. All right, are you ready for this? This is very important. Judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. Now, those are very, very serious words on Christ's part. They are heavy words. They are a threat. They are a threat. They are a gospel threat. They're like when your mom tells you, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, and I'm not uh, threatening you, I'm promising you. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay? Now, remember who's speaking. The man that God has appointed to judge the world. His words come with authority because he's the one who's going to do the judging. (laughs) And he's promising you, he's telling you, do not fault find in my kingdom. He's like a mother who comes into the room and says, not in this house. You must not judge your brother. This is counter to everything that I have taught you in the gospel, Jesus is seeing. This is the kind of righteousness that Pharisees and scribes have, not my disciples. This is not the kind of righteousness that the gospel produces or the fruits that it bears. Look what he says in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? He means whatever fault it is that we think we see in our brother. But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? Then there is the log, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite, first take out the log from your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What Jesus is saying is that there's not going to be any judgment between brothers and sisters in my kingdom unless it's self-judgment. Pay attention to the log in your own eye, Jesus is saying. But what what he's teaching in the whole course of the sermon then is that gospel righteousness comes with an attitude of great humility to the people of God. It's characterized by humility in our relationship with one another. We are not proud, arrogant, know-it-all, holier-than-thou boasters. And we are not attempting to fix the problem of our brothers and sisters. Now, Jesus, of course, here is not rebuking true biblical confrontation or church discipline. But he's, he's, the whole sermon, he's talking about true righteousness in the very depths of the soul. He's talking about our attitudes towards one another. We must not judge. We must not nitpick. We must not fault find. We must not condemn our brother. We must look to ourselves and judge sin in our own heart and our own flesh. And this is exactly what he says then in the next place in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Jesus is saying, if you have pearls of wisdom, keep them to yourself. (laughs) Don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes. 
who are showing off their righteousness and their knowledge and are boasters and proud and arrogant. Be humble. Remember that you have come under condemnation and I have delivered you. Treat one another likewise. Treat yourself likewise. When he says, first take out the log from your own eye, then you will see clearly this, take the speck out of your brother's eye. What Jesus is really saying is about 99% of the time you're going to realize that the speck in your brother's eye isn't worth mentioning. <laughs> it's not worth it. And so he tells us to carry ourselves with a spirit of humility. The scribes and the Pharisees were always fault-finding and uh, indulging in self-righteousness and boasting and lording over what they thought God's word said over their brothers and their sisters. And then Jesus comes. He's beginning to wrap up his sermon. He comes to this final place, and he says that true gospel righteousness is characterized by humility before God. And notice what he says in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Now, your temptation is to take that with general, the broadest general application. We tend to see that verse being treated with respect to prayer in general. Certainly, there's application there. But if you've been following Jesus in his sermon, at this point of the sermon, what are you asking for? What do you realize you desperately need above all else? Gospel righteousness. Holiness of heart that penetrates to the eyes and to the very thoughts and intentions. And a pure, unadulterated love of the Father. Who, who, who here can say that all that they do is motivated by a pure, unadulterated love of the Father? Who here doesn't immediately come under the condemnation of Jesus when he says, judge not lest you be judged? And the measure that you've used, I will measure it back to you. And so Jesus comes here for the sake of his disciples and even for the sake of the lost. He says, if you see your need, if you see your lack, if you see the corruptions that remain in your heart, ask. My promise is I will give it to you. Seek. You will find. Knock, it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus is encouraging us here to get on our hands and knees and to show humility. This gospel righteousness, this righteousness that exceeds, is totally beyond human effort, totally beyond human ability. It can only be attained by prayer. It's a gift. And so he's exhorting us very strongly here, and he's promising us, ask Ask for a pure heart and a cleansing within. Ask for a love of the Father based on His forgiveness of sin. Seek it, He says. Now, if you seek something, you don't find it immediately, do you? Jesus is encouraging us 
to keep seeking and to keep asking. You ever knocked on somebody's door? If you're like me, you knock and then you realize, oh, they'll never. That was so, what was I so limp-wristed for? It was so weak. <laughs> and then you go again. And of course, they don't answer. And then you start having the dialogue, right? You start, okay, did they not hear me or are they not home? So you, got, you knock a third time, everybody does. This is what Jesus is saying. <clears throat> Seek this. You can't do it in your own strength. It doesn't come from within. It comes from the Lord God. It comes from the gospel. It comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. But the promise is this. If you ask, you will find. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, it will be opened. Very encouraging words. This is an encouragement to all of us who are in Christ today. It's a call to you if you're outside of Christ. If you, call, if you ask for salvation, the Lord God of heaven and earth will give it to you. So he summarizes his sermon. So whatever you wish others to do, we're in chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. He's saying the summary of everything that I've said is do unto others as I've done, as you would have them do unto you. Now, let's all come to a screeching halt for a moment and realize the context that Jesus is speaking in. In the sermon that Jesus has just preached for you, what do you want others to do for you? (laughs) What do you need them to do for you? He's not teaching us just to be nice to each other. Of course, that's included He's teaching us to forgive one another. He's teaching us to be patient with one another and to serve one another in long-suffering and with kindness and with encouragement and exhortation and stirring up to good works and reminding each other of the beatitude of the gospel and the power and the divinity of our Lord and the goodness of our Father. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not a message for the world. That's not a message for the refrigerator. That's a message for Christ's people. Forgive. Learn to forgive as your Father has forgiven you. Now, he's going to make four applications. We'll be very brief here. The first application is that this way of life is not easy, and few there are who find it. And he says that in verse 13 of chapter 7. In verse 14, he goes on in verse 15 to make his second application. And his second application is to beware of false prophets. And before we go down the rabbit hole of that whole topic and subject, basically what Jesus is reminding us of is that as we seek to live this kind of gospel righteousness, we are going to be surrounded by people in Christ's kingdom who don't practice this kind of righteousness. Don't let it be an excuse for you to not practice it and not to strive to practice it. Don't let it be a discouragement to you, Jesus is saying. You're going to be surrounded with people who are going to constantly be trying to lead you astray from this kind of gospel purity. He says, hold fast is what he's really saying. So he warns us of that. Beware. There will be false brothers. There will be false teachers who will seek to lead you away from these things in the church. His third application and his fourth application, his last two applications are the most important of the whole sermon. His third application is to beware of nominalism. 
And one way that we could frame this is what Jesus is saying is beware of failing to hear everything I just said to you. (laughs) Beware of turning the gospel into a scribal, pharisaical kind of a system. But just to keep it simple, he's, he's warning us of nominalism. He is telling us that there are going to be people in the kingdom of God whose lives are not transformed, but outwardly they seem whitewashed. Jesus is here in this application saying, don't let it be you. Examine your own heart. Look what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? That means to teach and to preach and to serve in the church. Did we not cast out demons in your name? That is, didn't we exhibit spirits, uh, gra- fruits of the Spirit, graces? And did we not do many mighty works in your name? Good works, sacrifices, giving up of Saturdays and meals for those that we love in the church? Didn't we do all of these things, Jesus? And here's the warning, verse 23. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What Jesus is reminding us of here is that the righteousness that exceeds is a righteousness that permeates the whole being in the secret places before God and is not boastful and arrogant and proud but, and not self-reliant, but trusting in the Lord is based on a life of prayer. And Jesus is warning us, be careful about nominalism. Jesus is saying there will be people in the kingdom. This is actually going to happen. Brothers, look around you. Which one of you today is it going to be? Maybe it will even be me on the judgment day. Here we all are gathered around the throne of Christ and we are all glorying and exalting because we're about to enter into heaven. And Jesus stops one of us. Which one? And we all look around and say, what's going on? That's our brother. We grew up with him. We knew him. He was in our church. We saw him. He was there every Saturday, every cleaning day. He taught our Sunday school. He maybe even preached from the pulpit. And Jesus is going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. In the context of the sermon, not once did you pray and ask for this gospel righteousness. Not once did you believe it in your heart. Not one thing did you do in secret out of a pure love of the Father. Not one little pinky did you raise to go to war with the sin in your heart and in your thoughts and in your intentions and in your desires. Lord, Lord, I don't know you. You see what Jesus has done in the gospel. He's united us to himself. He's brought us to himself. He's warning us of nominalism. That's not righteousness. That's not gospel righteousness. Gospel righteousness is love for Jesus Christ, trust and dependence upon him. I'm trying to avoid personal relationship, but that's it. I don't know you, Jesus says. 
You don't know the gospel. And you don't know it so you could have your sin. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And so Jesus warns us of this. And then he finally warns us of failing to act. Man, it just lays us open. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Who does them is the emphasis. And the rain fell and the floodwaters came and the winds blew and it beat on that house. He's talking about judgment day. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, fails to put them into practice, will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was its fall. Brothers and sisters, I've warned you about this before. Your faith has three parts to it. Knowledge. Even the demons know God. Knowing truth. Assent, which is a sense of worship or love of God for who he is. Even the demons, tri- even the demons tremble. Even the demons appear before God in heaven and worship him. But brothers and sisters, that final part of faith is essential to faith. Those other two parts are always there, but they're not enough. It's not enough to know the truth. It's not enough to even love the truth. The final part of faith is fiducia, or trust in Jesus Christ, and a giving of your soul to him to care for and to protect, and he becomes your Lord. Trust in Jesus. And Jesus is warning us of those who lack trust, fiducia. They fail to act. They say, oh, what a beautiful sermon. That's the most amazing sermon I've ever heard anyone speak. They're just like the crowds. They're astonished because Jesus just spoke with divine authority. Who could deny that this is the Son of God and he's coming in judgment? Who could deny the beatitude and the blessing and its transformational power that it has in the life of his people? Who could deny this beautiful thing called purity of heart and purity of love for the Father and an awareness and an understanding of the forgiveness of sins that changes our whole character? And Jesus says, there's plenty of people who think this sermon is beautiful. There aren't so many people who trust in me and put it into practice and exhibit this gospel holiness and are transformed and conformed to its image. The world is filled. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is filled with false brothers and nominalists and fools. Don't be one of them. That's what he means. That's what he's saying. Now, here we are at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Lord God of heaven and earth has just spoken to us. And I, we, are, we are laid open. And maybe you're here today and you're saying to me, Pastor, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> 
I'm the fool. I, I'm the one who's nominally devoted to Jesus Christ. There's not one pure motive in my whole soul anywhere. I, I want to be holy. I want to be righteous. I want to see the face of God and become like Him. And I know I'm not. I've got wonderful news for you today. <laughs> I mean, surely you see where I'm going with this. I've got wonderful news for you today. Do you remember how Jesus opened His sermon? With benediction. Who is His benediction to? Was it to the rich? Was it to the wise? Was it to the holy? Was it to the righteous? No, it was to those who are without the Spirit. It was to those who mourn over the miseries of their sin. It was to those who are enslaved to the dominion of their sin. It's to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And all of those things that Jesus said. <laughs> I've got good news for you. Blessed are you. Today salvation has come to you and to your house. Today is the day of repentance. Jesus calls to you with divine power. Do you see what he did to Simon? He simply said, follow me. And they dropped everything and they immediately went. He's the light to the Gentiles. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Put your trust in him. Receive the benediction. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For they, or for theirs, is the kingdom of God. This is the free gift of God's grace. Now Jesus is saying, now, based on that grace, go live this righteousness. <laughs> keep striving, keep seeking, keep repenting, keep asking, keep knocking, keep taking the warnings. Come and follow me.